0: So, to our next guest, uh, Blake Morrison made me cry. Um, he did more than once in And When Did You Last See Your Father, which was published 20 years ago um, this year um, and remains definitive, adapted for the screen by our own dear David Nichols. Is there something going on? Sorry, what's happening? What are you doing? Okay. As. Blake's father dies far from easily. Blake explores their far from easy relationship. He's a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. Blake writes fiction, poetry, journalism, criticism, and libretti. He's currently professor of creative and life writing at Goldsmiths College. How has memoir changed since his landmark book? How has he? Let's find out. Please welcome the fantastic Blake Morrison.
1: Thank you, thank you, Damien. Um, <clears throat> thank you for asking me what a terrific setup you have here, first time I've been. Um, keeping the sporting theme going, I've given up running recently. <laughs> we can compare marathon notes in a bit. Um, I play tennis now and, now and then. And um, The other evening, uh, I went along with these guys I play regularly with, and one of them asked me, You were up in Yorkshire last week, weren't you? I said, Yeah. He said, Did you drop in and see your dad then? I thought, okay, okay, Jim, I know you don't read my books then. (laughs) It reminded me of Nick Hornby. He told me a story once about this guy. He said he wanted to meet him. He was such a fan of his book, absolutely loved Fever Pitch. And they had a long... Nick kind of slightly reluctantly met him, and this guy absolutely loved your book, every word of it. Um, Do you support any particular team? (laughs) Uh, Damien said it's a sort of father's evening I'm going to smuggle my mother in but I want to start by reading from the very beginning of um, When Did You Last See Your Father Um, one of the pleasing things about the film um, and thanks to David Nichols who wrote the screenplay is that they kept the beginning that I had uh, which is this can I read this now, put these on a hot September Saturday and we are stationary in Cheshire Ahead of us, a queue of cars stretches out of sight around the corner. We haven't moved for ten minutes. Everyone has turned their engine off, and now my father does so too. In the sudden silence, we can hear the distant whinge of what must be the first race of the afternoon, a ten-lap event for saloon cars. My father does not like waiting in queues. He's used to patients waiting in queues to see him, but he's not used to waiting in queues himself. A queue to him means a man being denied the right to be where he wants to be at a time of his own choosing, which is at the front. Now, ten minutes have passed. What's happening up ahead? What fathead has caused this snarl at? Why are no cars coming the other way? Has there been an accident? Why are there no police to sort it out? Every two minutes or so, my father gets out of the car crosses to the opposite verge and tries to see if there's movement up ahead there isn't he gets back in and steams some more in the cars ahead and behind people are laughing, eating sandwiches drinking from beer bottles, enjoying the weather settling in to the familiar indignity of waiting to get to the front but my father is not like them There are only two things on his mind, the invisible head of the queue and, not unrelated, the other half of the country lane, tantalisingly empty. (laughs) just relax, Arthur, my mother says. You're in and out of the car like a blue-tailed fly. But being told to relax only incenses him. What can it be, he demands. Maybe there's been an accident. Maybe they're waiting for an ambulance. We all know where this last speculation is leading, even before he says it. Maybe they need a doctor. (laughs) (laughs) No, Arthur, says my mother as he opens the door again and stands on the wheel arch to crane ahead. He waits for another 20 seconds or so, leans forward, opens the glove compartment, and pulls out a stethoscope. which he hooks over the mirror on the windscreen. (laughs) (laughs) He hangs there like a skeleton, the membrane at the top, the metal and rubber leads dangling, bow-legged, the two ivory earpieces clopping bonily against each other. Starts the engine, releases the handbrake, reverses two feet and pulls out into the opposite side of the road. No, says my mother again, half-heartedly. Of course, it could be he's about to do a three-point turn and go back. No, it couldn't. My father does not drive particularly quickly past the marooned cars ahead, no more than 20 miles an hour. Even so, it feels fast and arrogant, and all the occupants turn and stare as they see us coming. Some appear to be angry. Some are shouting. Point to the stethoscope, pet," he tells my mother. (laughs) But she has slid down sideways in a... In her passenger seat, out of sight, her bottom resting on the floor from where she berates him. God almighty Arthur, why do you have to do this? Why can't you wait like everyone else? What if we meet something coming the other way? Now my sister and I do the same. Hide ourselves below the sea. Our father is on his own. He's not with us. He's bullying, shaming, undemocratic cheat. Or rather, we are not with him. Finally... We're up level with the cars at the head of the queue, which are waiting to turn left into the brown ticket holder's entrance, the plebs' entrance. A steward steps out of the gateway towards us, but my father, pretending not to see him, doesn't stop and drives ahead onto another piece of road, 200 yards away, where the cars are moving. Magnanimous, my father waits until the last of them has turned in, then drives through the stone gate posts and over the bumpy grass to where a steward in a tweed jacket is waiting. Good afternoon, sir. Red ticket holder? The question does not come as a surprise. We've all seen the signs, numerous, clamorous, saying red ticket holder's entrance. But my father is undeterred. These, you mean, he says, and hands over his brown tickets. No, sir, I'm afraid these are brown. Oh, there must be some mistake. I applied for red tickets. To be honest, I didn't even look. I'm sorry, sir, these are Brown tickets, brown's the next entrance. If you just swing around here, oh, I'm happy to pay the difference. No, you see, so the rules say. I know where the brown entrance is, says my dad. i just spent the last hour queuing for it by mistake. I drove up here because I thought I was red. Oh, I can't go back now. The queue stretches for miles, and these children, you know. <laughs> so been looking forward to By now, half a dozen cars have gathered behind us. One of them pops. The steward is wavering. Now, you say you applied for it. Not only applied, paid for. (laughs) I'm a doctor, you see. He points at the stethoscope. And I like being near the grandstand. This double (laughs) non-sequitur seems to clinch it. Right, sir. All right, but... Next time, please check the tickets. So a few people said to me, well... suppose you'd be writing a book about your mother next (laughs) after I published a book about my dad. And I didn't ever think I would because my mother was, um, as my dad you will have gathered, it was sort of out there, big personality. It's very easy to write that book. He wrote it for me almost. My mother was a much more elusive, enigmatic individual. And um, I just didn't kind of know enough about her in a way uh, to feel like I could write about her but you know fair's fair what you only love your dad you only think your dad's worth writing a book about um no I wanted to when my mother died I wanted to write about her too um the, the little that I knew of was brought home to me at her funeral when <clears throat> somebody said because your mother was Irish wasn't she um I don't see any of her family here I said no I think I think they're all dead and someone said well actually how many of them were there and I realised I did not know how many brothers and sisters my mother had. So after her death we went to the Irish town where <coughs> she grew up um, and there was a surviving relative, my auntie Bridie and I said I was you know, wanting to find out a little bit about my mother's childhood and I didn't know about her brothers and sisters and she said, oh it's alright, <coughs> your grandfather he kept a list. LAUGHTER um, <coughs> And she disappeared into the next room and um, came back with three pieces of paper, uh, the names of the uh, O'Shea children, and there was my mother, number 19 of 20. Um, and I thought, I didn't know this. So here's a little passage uh, about that. All those names and numbers, an A to Z almost. At any rate, A to T. 20 children in 24 years. By any standards, that was going at some. Nearly a quarter of a century of pregnancies and births. How could my mother have called her mother, as she often did, a lady of leisure? <laughs> <laughs> some of the gaps between children were less than a year. I, I believe that's the phenomenon known as Irish twins. Um, <clears throat> scarcely long enough for a woman to have recovered from the last labor before embarking on the next. Was Margaret O'Shea one of those women whose children just pop out? In legends and dirty jokes, women as procreative as she was expire worn out before they're 40, but she'd lived to be 72. She'd had two generations' worth of children almost. A Victorian Edwardian period followed by an Edwardian Georgian. How differently those two generations fared, though. Of those in the first half, six died as infants, two more before they were 30. 1901 to 4 was the worst patch. Four children dead, one for every year. Miniature coffins became the family furniture. My grandparents, my grandparents, since I never knew them, it still seemed odd to say that. My grandparents must have thought of stopping then. Ten births in ten years, but only four survivors. Luckily, lucky for my mother, lucky for me, they persevered. And how? Ten more children, nine of whom lived on to adulthood, eight to a good age. So there were 20. Only 13 had lived beyond infancy and three had died, three of those, before being given names. Even so, it was odd that my mother, whose speciality was pediatrics and who talked of how distress she felt whenever she delivered a dead baby, had never mentioned these other siblings or siblings that failed to be. Before her time, though they were, she must have known about them. Why the silence? Why not say she was one of 20, or at least one of 13? Um, Well, uh, those were the questions uh, that caused me to write the book about my mother, trying to find the truth about her and try to understand who she was, where she was coming from, and why she couldn't tell her children that she was one of, 13 or 20, and so on. All tied up with his Irish past. But I'm going to stop there because I know Damien wants to ask a question.
0: Absolutely brilliant. Um, I, um, I read, and, and when did you last see your father? Years ago, um, I was recommended it by a friend when I was working at the Times, a friend who had not had a good relationship with his father. Um, and he said, you know, you, you, you sh- and at this point in, in my life, I was having a kind of, you know, strop of, I'm, not, I'm just never going to talk to him again. And he said, read this book, and you might feel differently. And I did, um, after, after having read it. And you do a brilliant afterwards to this, to this book for when the film adaptation came out in which you talk about fathers and sons um, and the, the kind of connection that that's given you to people. I wonder if you could kind of start by talking a, a, about, a wee bit about that.
1: Well, I mean, the main thing to say is I, I could never imagine, I don't know how it is for you, writing about my family. I mean, you know, my family were the opposite of books. They were the opposite of literature. Uh, they, you know, they were doctors and they wanted me to be a doctor, so how could I avoid being a doctor? Well read poetry read books and, you know it drove my dad mad to see me sitting reading a book um, so i was trying to escape him and you know guess what he gets to be in my book doesn't he? <laughs> <laughs> um he gets to be the subject of the only book that's kind of you know because i started as a poet that reached a wider readership thanks dad you know it was how do you think I he'd feel because, about that because oh well, i think he'd enjoy that <laughs> <laughs> um and you know he'd have enjoyed being played by Jim Broadbent. I like to think. Mm-hmm. The trouble is now, whenever I see, think of my dad, I see Jim Broadbent. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and you know, even worse than that is when I look in the mirror, I don't see Colin Firth. <laughs> um, um, so,
0: so the period of time that you're describing um, in the book is 1990. Came out in 93. 93, so the, yeah. the, your dad was dying in 91. Yeah. Um, and what struck me is there's a really short period of time between that, between that happening and between the book coming out. Um, so it's all, you, you were writing notes and, and poems as you, as you were experiencing it. It was very live.
1: Yeah, I mean, it sounds kind of wicked, doesn't it? There he is on his deathbed, and he was dying at home up in Yorkshire, and I was spending a lot of time there, um, that I was taking notes. But, um, and maybe there was, you know splinter of ice in the heart that I was doing that but I think also I was just trying to cope I couldn't sleep and I was back in my parents home and which I'd, is ri- weird. I'd, I'd write down all these extraordinary things that I observed i.e this man who was clearly immortal who was going to live forever was suddenly fading in front of me so I, I you know I kept notes and that certainly helped going back um, in the subsequent months writing about him which, which was frankly to begin with for, for therapeutic reasons to feel better to Just is know. that because
0: you couldn't talk to anybody and you're writing it down was easier no, you weren't I couldn't, going to be challenged uh, or
1: No, I couldn't I could not talk about my dad without you know welling up and <clears throat> so I took myself off briefly to see a therapist and that was going okay until one day I sort of imagined my dad over my shoulder saying, fifty quid an hour yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what? What the fuck do you think you're doing? Wasting money that way. So, so you know, the, the, write, the writing was the was, was way of yeah, coping, being able to talk about him, put, uh, you know, um, putting him on the page... Um
0: there's so much of, of, of what you say about your dad and how you say it is so Yorkshire um, and um, my, my, the, you know, my, my boyfriend's from Yorkshire, he's not like that but his parents are quite like that, particularly his dad and there was so much of it that seemed so familiar to me and I didn't really realise that he was a type until I was reading it um, and yet you are here down in, in London and there's a real contrast, isn't there, um, between you, Blake, down in London away doing poetry and up in up in Yorkshire doing medicine it's like you're a stranger when you go back
1: yeah, um, my sister's still back, uh, living in the house. We're, same house. Uh, we're, we're the same house. The same house. She is a little worried um, about, you know, sub, You know, I've written a book about my dad, a book about my mum. <laughs> <laughs> there's only one other member of the family. Um, I have tried to reassure her that um, she'll have to die first, and I'm not going to, you know, speed that up. It's all
0: right. <laughs> Um, how did your mum feel about, and, and your sister, how did you feel about the book when it came out about your dad? I mean, I mean it's a kind of question about what, what responsibility, if any, do memoirists have to the living?
1: Well, I, I show, you know, yeah, my mum was very much alive when I had this book in draft, and I did show it to her and say, um, look, if there's anything here you're unhappy with, I won't publish it or we can change things. And she said, well, there is one thing on page 119. You describe me as a Catholic... Would you mind taking that out? Um, She was completely, you know, what was that about? Um, In a way, that's why I ended up writing a book about her, to try and understand why that was such an issue, uh, because I hadn't realised it was. I mean, well, I didn't know she was Catholic.
0: But I mean, the book about your dad was written, very. it's very much live. A lot of it you're writing on the train, when you're, when you're on the train down from Yorkshire to London. Um, a lot of it's notes and it's poetry, and it's very kind of Im- immediate, immediate in, in the truest sense of the word. With your mum, you have to do a lot more detective work, um, and you have to be a bit more of a voyeur, don't you? Because you, what you use a lot is their letters.
1: Yeah, my dad never threw anything away, and um, at some point... Um, you know, way before his death, he, he, he said, "Look, come in here. I want to show you under this table. I've got a whole load of family correspondence. You might like to read this one day." And I thought, "Yeah, you know, boring old letters. No way am I ever going to want to read them." Uh, when my mother was dying, I suddenly realised this was this. You know, in there was the correspondence that exchanged um, before I was way before I was thought of before they were together when they were courting. In other words, I kind of had access there to period of life, we never normally, know. we don't know about our parents before we came along, before they were parents, Um, you know, that intense love between them or whatever, Um, and suddenly I had all these letters, and I I felt a bit guilty about reading them, but, you know, he had given me permission to read them, if you like, and so it was through those letters, yeah, that I was able to write about my mum.
0: Um, and I mean, you, you mentioned the kind of intense passion. But what's very interesting to me about their relationship, and you, and you talk about this at length, is that they did. They, obviously, they did have an intense passion later. But when they met, it wasn't. It wasn't intense. Your, your dad was sort of almost kind of trying on his luck, and there was um, a, um, because of the, the, the difference during the war in the postal times for the letters. There was a lot of kind of almost Shakespearean misunderstanding and misinterpretation <laughs> of facts.
1: Yeah, um, my dad was in the RAF. An RAF doctor during the war. Um, and he was in those hot spots of the Second World War, the Azores and Iceland. In other words, he was (laughs) sitting around doing nothing for for weeks on end. My mother was working a socks-off in hospital. She'd come over from Ireland. So he had time to write these incredibly long letters to my mum, and she would write a few lines between operations and so on to him. So there was that real disjunction. Um, But, you know... you. The strange thing for me reading these letters is there are so many obstacles to them yes. marrying and being together that it was like reading a thriller and thinking well, it, I, I did actually think no, they're never going to get married and I'm never going to get born. <laughs> um, and, um, so it was wonderful to get to the end and finally, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> the loving happy ending. I'll
0: take questions, Sylvia. Hello.
1: Hello. Um, I have many questions, but my question for you is this. You have worked in many kind of like different mediums of writing, poetry, journalism, script writing. Which do you feel most comfortable with and
0: why? That's a very good question, actually. I mean, you've described yourself um, in the past as an, an ex-poet. Um, and wh- which of the many, many various ways that you write is, is kind of your favourite? Do you have one?
1: Well, I've, I've gone back to poetry. Um, it's, it's difficult. I mean, I keep trying different things. You know, one day I'll find the right thing the right form. I don't think um, you will. I think
0: you enjoy all the different things, don't I like you? Isn't quite different things?
1: Different? Um, as I say, you, you know, you move from memoir to fiction because you run out of family members to write about. Um, <laughs> and um, I mean, poetry was how I started and maybe it's what I'm getting back to now. I don't think I have a favourite, but y- y- you need to tell different stories in different ways using different forms. So you, each time you're trying to find the right form.
0: You didn't think about fictionalising the, the stuff about your dad?
1: It would have been the cowardice, really. I mean, the whole point of that book is people believe the story. You know, what worth it has is you believe here's a guy who's grieving over his father, this is a real man, this is, and so on. Um, so, no, I didn't think there was much point fictionalising it. Jojo?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the question is really about the responsibility to the people who are maybe depicted or around the fringes of, of the memoir. If you're telling truth about them, and and how do you t- how do you tell that truth about them? Is there, I guess, a subjective one one story?
1: Yeah. I mean, you. <sighs> You might change your name or two, you do, you do obviously try and protect people. Um, I tried to protect somebody with whom uh, I described an embarrassing sex scene, if you like, in <laughs> the book and changed the name and she's really annoyed so, why couldn't I be <laughs> <laughs> why couldn 't I have my real name um, and, and then there was Auntie Beatty, who's, who was sort of the other woman, my father's other woman in my childhood, and I, I changed her name. And she got to hear about the book, and she, was, she rang me up, and she said, this is terrible, terrible, I, I've heard about this, but you better send it to me, and I did. <laughs> and um, I, I, that was maybe a bit naughty, not consulting her. I showed everybody else. Um, she rang up and said, I've read it, it's you know, it is awful what you've done, Well I changed the name. I'm sending the book back. It never arrived in uh, the post. Oh. And, um, and then she rang up a little later and, you know, we talked to uh, each other a lot over the next few years. You know, we can get a bit too fearful sometimes about how people are going to react. You know, some people think just the mere act of being written about is, a, is somehow an act of violence or desecration. But some people enjoy being written about. They don't necessarily object family members. You can be surprised.
0: Uh, I'm going to say two questions. There's one at the back and then, then Jessica at the front. So I couldn't... See- Oh, oh, okay, uh, and did he raise his, it's you, oh it's you you're waving a cane at me <laughs> okay, that means I have to take three questions, uh, one two, you can go last though. <laughs> Julia yeah i mean how, how how far do you i mean I guess in, in, in fiction how far does does the does the truth or memoir type stuff intrude? In, and I guess vice versa how, how quickly might you how much might you fictionalize memoir stuff
1: uh, very little I mean I think Philip Larkin said you know poetry's about yourself and fiction's about other people, and that's a bit crude, but i I think of my fiction as being you know fully fictionalized it 's not the kind of people I know in disguise um, and the memoir. On the whole you can believe it, I think. I like to think. Jessica. Um, I just want more than a question, but I haven't made it on the yet. But they only mentioned the lot of like. Um did you ever question making very public what your mother had
0: kept private? Yeah, did you ever did you ever question making public what your mother had chosen to keep private?
1: Well, I don't know that she kept it private, you know, my dad had collected these letters and kept them very carefully wrapped up. And I, I did worry my mother would get rid of them towards the end of her life, but she never did. Um, so I kind of felt I had permission there. And in the end, you, you know, you ask yourself, what, what, how are you using these letters? Is, is it as homage or is it because you're writing a misery memoir about how you hate your parents? It wasn't the latter. You know, I, I, it is kind of paying homage to them. So I felt it was okay. She might have been um, a bit embarrassed, if I'm honest, by by some of the things, but I don't think there would have been a, a, a major objection.
0: Um, I'll take that one question at the back there. Sorry, go ahead, Pass. Um, the, 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 you know, in, in what I wonder is, recently, let's say in the last 20 years since you wrote his um, um to what extent has there been a Look, the greatest personal memoirs have been universalistic as well. Um, I speak from experience when
1: I say that pushing stuff to the mass media. Recently,
0: they want stuff that is personal and wireless. Uh, okay, I, I think I get where you're going with this question. I mean, twenty years ago, when 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 you when you wrote this book, it was I mean, very 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 different from a lot of, of what was around it, and very controversial and, and lots of ways. How has the genre, do you think, changed um, since since your since your contribution?
1: Yeah, I mean, it came out at the same time as Fever Pitch, which was also largely non-fiction memoir, to some extent confessional memoir. Um, You know, and and ten years before that, people would have said, could you go away and write a novel and disguise all this and change all this? So so the memoir opened up at the beginning of the 90s to people who were not well-known, who might even be young, to write something that felt a bit like fiction, but which was true, true, true stories. Now I worry that we're in an age of celebrity memoirs. And I, I, I teach life writing at Goldsmiths as was mentioned. And you know, I'd like to think that some of the really interesting stories that uh, some of my students are telling are going to be publishable. I worry that actually the only memoirs people want anymore are celebrity memoirs. You know, and so we're going to miss that texture of ordinary life if, if, if that happens. But you know, it's a very legitimate form. And as you say, it's an ancient lineage. Confessional memoirs have been around for at least 2,000 years. <coughs>
0: Cheryl Cole's not a part of that. Huge thank you to Blake
1: Morrison.